and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez. I'm Steve Edelman. And today it's just the two of us and we're going to talk a little bit about current events, specifically crowd control. Steve? Well, and, and podcast listener, you can probably anticipate where this is coming from, at least if you know, you may be curious about where it's going, and we'll tell you that in a second. But obviously, the incident last Wednesday at the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., horrified all of us. And, well, we didn't want to stick with just that, that sense of helplessness and confusion. And so what we've tried to do is to tease out the teachable moments for event professionals, because there are, frankly, quite a few of them. Um, So what we're going to do for this podcast is here's kind of the overview, and then we'll, we'll acknowledge the things that are important, but that we're not going to talk about on this podcast because we're not qualified and there will be other forums, other tribunals where those issues will be worked out and facts will be unearthed and you know, guilt and responsibility will be resolved. We're not gonna talk about those things and I'll enumerate the things we're not gonna talk about in just a minute in order to get to the the useful event professional stuff that we can learn from last week's Capitol riots in our context as event professionals who, God willing, one day in the relatively near future will have crowds to deal with again. So that's the overview at the highest level. Now let's come down a little. So we're going to talk about what event professionals can learn from the Capitol riots about crowd management and crowd control, because those are two different things. And we'll start by distinguishing them and defining the terms. What event professionals can learn about crowd management and crowd control for your events, your venues, our events and venues, because that's us. So that's what we're going to do in this podcast. Here's what we're not going to talk about. And then, Danielle, I'll throw it back to you. What we're not going to talk about, among other things, we're not going to talk about the current president or the remaining days in his administration. If you want to talk politics, not here, not now anyway. We're not going to talk about the election, the results, the controversy to the extent that there actually is. We're not talking about that. We're not going to talk about Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, QAnon, Proud Boys, idiots wearing horns and feathers. We're not talking about any of that other than to acknowledge that it exists because on this podcast, we are not going to talk about American politics at all, except as it sets up a teachable moment for us as event professionals. We do want to acknowledge and mourn the loss of life that happened um, and the injury and the resulting unrest. As Steve said, all of those other issues, very important being worked out in other forums is not our place. And this is not the time for us as the Event Safety Podcast to delve into those issues. So now that we've given you all of our preambles and caveats and all that stuff, Let's let's talk about what we saw, because, again, we're going by we have no inside sources. We're going by what we saw in the news, just like what you guys probably saw on the news. So let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about the difference between crowd control 
and crowd management. So this is just framing the conversation now because it's important to use terms of art correctly. So this will be short. And we've talked about crowd management versus crowd control in other podcasts. So you can go back through the event safety podcast and dive more into this if that's what you wanna do. But for present purposes, crowd management is all of the planning that you do in order to have an event where people can go you know, arrive safely, attend safely, and depart safely. It's all the planning, all the arrangements, all the communications, the command center, all the logistics, all the cooperative relationships that you create in order to have a safe event. That's what crowd management is. By contrast, crowd control is what law enforcement and security professionals try to regain when the crowd has gone out of control. And so applying this now to last Wednesday's capital riots, crowd management was the planning, the deployment of capital police, the installation of bike rack, um, determining post orders, um, putting some people on radio and some people not on radio. Um, all of that was crowd management. Crowd control is almost all of the images that you can see, the still pictures, the video, the accounts, all of that describes efforts to regain control of a crowd that you know, broke through barriers, um, you know, assaulted police officers and rampaged into spaces where people should not have been, where they were carrying objects they should not have carried. All of that is crowd control. What we're talking about mostly on today's podcast is crowd control, which is a subject that we don't usually talk about here at ESA because frankly, if you do crowd management really well, and if you get lucky enough not to have a riot on your hands, then you don't ever have to think about crowd control because your crowd never loses control in the first place. So this is a relatively rare instance where crowd control is going to be the primary focus because crowd management was quickly overwhelmed quickly and quite graphically and importantly for us. Yeah, I would say part of the reason we talk so much about crowd management is to minimize the risk of needing crowd control. I, I would also point out when, when we're talking about risk management and planning, we frequently will include in that the measures to be in place for crowd control. When you're doing your trigger charts and you're planning your communications with local LEOs, that, those are the steps you take to put in place in case you need them for crowd control. But we normally are practicing specifically crowd management because we want people to come in, have a good time, stay safe, and go home and tell everybody on social media what a great time they had. This is not what happened in Washington. So um, let's talk a little bit about risk management planning because one of the things that I heard frequently was there was some hesitation to put in place those extra efforts that had been put in place over the summer because they didn't want the backlash from the visual. So I can see that being a problem if I'm planning my concert and I'm using what happened at the last one 
I probably need to consider all the forces in place for current shows, not, uh, anyway, Steve, you can explain this better than I can. So it's let, letting history guide you, but not lead you, maybe. That, that's right, Danielle. And the conversation is, how do you know what's going to happen in the future? Well, you obviously don't. None of us has a crystal ball. So what's the best source of information about what's likely to happen? It's what has happened in the relatively recent past. So you know, if you've got a touring act coming to your venue, how do you figure out what a reasonable security deployment would be? Well, you look at several things. And these were things that were done to some extent at the Capitol as well, but let's take it out of that context and apply it to yours. So if it's a touring act coming to your venue, you look at what was the crowd behavior like at previous stops along the same tour. That's useful information. If suddenly the crowd is going nuts every time this act takes the stage, that tells you that it is at least reasonably foreseeable, not a certainty, but you know, use the right legal term, it's reasonably foreseeable that the crowd is gonna go nuts at your venue too when this same act takes the stage. Alternatively, you can look at social media posts, and that was certainly done by the Capitol Police. Um, you can look at social media posts to see what's the chatter. Um, are people talking about arriving very early, which tells you that you may have some pressure at your points of, of egress, uh, sorry, ingress early on when doors open. Well, that's that's a scenario we've seen for many years, you know, notoriously the WHO disaster in Cincinnati in 1979, where you know people got crushed trying to enter Riverfront Coliseum. So you can find out quite a lot about the crowd's likely intentions just by listening to them, by looking at them. Um, here's a hint about how to do that. If you don't have access to the kind of technology that would allow you personally to monitor all the social media channels that patrons are likely to be talking on, your local fusion center, this is through the Department of Homeland Security, many larger cities, it's not a state by state thing, it's a city by city thing. Many larger cities have fusion centers and they themselves are monitoring things like social media chatter. And what they're looking for, what they're looking for is, you know, terrorist activity, but that serves your purposes just as well because you want to know what are people talking about on social media? And there are public safety officials likely near where you're located who are monitoring that activity as well. So getting in touch with the people who work in your local fusion center is a way of getting some free research on what people are talking about. Now, let's just add a caveat. Lawyers love caveats. Um, here we have <laughs> caveats and disclaimers all over the place. And we even had a preamble because this is talking about the stuff at the Capitol. A caveat about social media. Some people will correctly point out, well, you can't take everything on social media as gospel. It's not, you know, every time somebody threatens to do something, 99% of the time, it doesn't happen. It's just puffery. It's, you know, just somebody boasting on social media. 
Well, I don't know if I can quantify it as 99% versus 96%. doesn't really matter. There is certainly a lot of truth to the idea that you don't take every threat on social media as one to which you must respond. But there is some tipping point where if there is enough conversation that is specific enough, a reasonable person takes that seriously. A reasonable person does something to respond to threats which, you know, by some accumulated weight, start to look credible. I, th I think you just paraphrased the standard duty of care. Just I, I did. I, th I just I was paying attention. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I would also say you know if you have a rep uh, any sort of relationship with your local uh, law enforcement, frequently they will be happy if you're like I'm concerned about this. Can you help me monitor social media? For example, the university police have done that for events in the past for us. Um, and typically they're like normal stuff, everything's fine. You know, so they have, a, they have a good metric based on what they're used to seeing. If something stands out, they are willing and able most of the time to be your ally. And if they're not, then um, they probably don't see the risk the same way you are. Um, and most of the time I would say that they're the expert in this domain, not us. There are exceptions to all of that. So nobody, I don't need any, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not a cut and dry thing. It, all of this is kind of, you know, get as much information as you can so that you can make the best decisions for your risk assessment that you can. Well, right. Um, and, you know, let, let's acknowledge that people listening to this podcast come from all different environments. I have been in some stadium command centers where they are monitoring every social media channel that's relevant in that market. And it is very Absolutely. impressive to see, you know, people's tweets coming through live and, you know, you got to strain to follow them. Fortunately, you can freeze the screen. Um, but I have seen that in multiple stadium command centers. So I know that the resources exist in more resource rich environments. Having said that, I suspect many people watch, uh, listening to this podcast are not in quite such resource-rich environments. And for you, having a, a cooperative relationship with your local law enforcement not only will be to your benefit, because you'll have more information, but will be to their benefit because they will be able to staff your events more reasonably because they'll know what you're doing and they know what people are talking about in your community. Absolutely. I do think those resources are super cool though. So if anybody wants to gift me one, I'll take it. <laughs> All well, right. And, and, and so, none of that is, is new. So I'm going to drop names periodically here. So my friend, Mike Derbyshire, who used to be up in Edmonton, Mike was the first one to show me that, um, you know, you can monitor social media in real time because he used to do it and he showed me how it was done up in Edmonton. That was, I don't know, almost 10 years ago now. And I have seen it in other major metropolitan areas in stadiums and convention centers. So I know that this is a thing. Um, and I think it's important to recognize, well, this is not, a, you know, this is not technology that's completely beyond my scope. 
when you're talking to the people who hold your budgetary purse strings, it, you know, this is a conversation that you probably do want to have. May not be possible given, you know, current financial constraints, but it's something to keep on your radar. Put it on the wish list. Exactly. Put it on the wish list. <laughs> Let's talk about the next issue. Um, that okay, we I feel saw... strongly about this next issue. Yeah, go for it, Danielle. Okay, I feel strongly about this issue. Total politics aside, oh my God, they waited too long to evacuate the people from the chambers because it was minutes at most before those barricades fell and people were in the chambers where all those people were. We can translate that easily to a tornado or a active shooter or any other time when you're evacuating, you need to have your evacuation happen with enough buffer time that, you know, that you're not having to actually physically assist your people out of their space. Sorry, I feel strongly about that one because I was like, oh, they waited too long. Well, they, they certainly <laughs> waited too long. So second name drop. This is when, you know, dear podcast listener, Hopefully you are picturing our good friend, Dr. Kevin Clazel from the University of Oklahoma, because Kev has talked for years about the importance of basing your severe weather trigger chart. He is after all the university meteorologist for the University of Oklahoma at Norman, which is basically the epicenter of all crappy weather in the United States. And Dr. Kevin Clazel has always talked about how knowing what weather is likely based on the, the meteorological science doesn't get you to safety, then you have to use the information that you possess and apply it to the human beings who need to be evacuated, as well as to the physical environment in which those human beings exist. So in the event context, it's not only about moving people from, you know, away from an active shooter, which is probably the closest analogy. And goodness knows one that we talked about a lot before the pandemic closed all of our doors. You know, that was, you know, the, the attraction du jour was active shooter training, run, hide, fight. Well, where are people hiding? That was all about sheltering in place. Well, obviously that doesn't work during a pandemic, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But if you're going to have people run, where are they going? And when do you get them started? So what we saw in the U.S. Capitol was they waited too long. And Danielle, I think, is unequivocally, inarguably correct that in both the Senate and House chambers, the sergeants at arms waited too long. And we know that because you know, elected officials and their staffs were still in harm's way when there were people with weapons and bad intent literally right outside of the chamber doors, banging on the doors. And only through the exceptionally quick thinking of you know, people like Capitol Police Officer Eugene Gort, uh, Goodman were some elected officials saved from pretty perilous circumstances. So for you, gentle podcast listener, it is important to have 
an evacuation plan which builds in an element of consciousness of time. Time. So let, let's frame that and then I'll come back to time considerations for you. In crowd management theory, uh-oh, theory, damn, I hate theory. Um, in American <laughs> crowd management theory, it starts with a guy named John Fruin. John Fruin was a New York City traffic engineer doing his stuff in the late 60s and early 70s. And this is still in the NFPA life safety code, NFPA 101, so you do have to know it. Um, and the four elements of crowd dynamics that Dr. Fruin came up with were time, space, information, and energy. Those are the four things you're supposed to think about when determining how people move in space. Time, time is the first element because it's the most obviously important. So when thinking about where to evacuate, when to evacuate, how to evacuate, you have to think about who are you evacuating and what sort of time do they need? You know, I've had this conversation for years with people who have slower or older crowds and they need longer, or you have to think about where are they going? If they're going back to their cars in a distant satellite parking lot, you have to start the evacuation sooner. You know, if you're doing shelter in place, how much space do you have? And are there reasons that you can't cram a lot of people in as now? Yeah, I would, I would second all that. Uh, for example, we do a, a concert series, which is primarily elderly people. And when we have factored in when we have to evacuate this outdoor space due to severe thunderstorms or tornadoes or whatever big bad weather is coming our way, again, not political at all, uh, it takes longer for those people to physically get up and move to a safe place. So you have to build in that extra time. Uh, conversely, if you have families with small children, that is another thing that takes significantly longer. Uh, if you've ever had to move a four-year-old who doesn't understand why they have to leave, the fun thing they're doing, they, they, are, they slow you down plus five. <laughs> um, well, exactly, Danielle, plus five, explain that. Uh, well, it's kind of a gaming metaphor. Um, you can get different abilities or different objects that make you faster or slower. And uh, toddler, resistant toddlers or multiple children or multiple family groups or multiple old people, older people who have mobility issues, all of these people will slow you down by increments of time. Um, it's, it's just- Excuse me. And families won't leave their kids or elderly relatives behind. So no, group, and any don't ask group. me to, because I'm not going to. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, any group will move only at the speed of its slowest member. So when you think about how much time do you need to evacuate, it's not for all of the, you know, fit, able-bodied, aware people who may be your peer group. No, no, no. It's the slowest, the most reluctant, the youngest, the people who for whatever reason are slower to comprehend what's going on and then to turn that into action. That is the, the demographic for which your evacuation has to be based. And unfortunately what we saw in the Capitol is that didn't happen at all. Um, and that is a that is a pretty inexcusable bit of crowd mismanagement 
because mm -hmm. the element of time, the consideration of how long people need to move from one place to another, again, you know, it applies to active shooter situations. It applies to severe weather situations. It applies to unscheduled conclusions. You know, the headline artist has laryngitis and can't perform. Um, you know, all sorts of different reasons why the show doesn't continue through its scheduled conclusion requires moving people in some way that they weren't expecting. And you have to know in advance, at least in general terms, how long you need in order to do that safely. And that seems to have been just not yeah. built into the plan um, at the Capitol, at least based and, on the images that we've seen. Yeah, and, and some of the reports that I read, and I cannot speak for their 100% uh, veracity, uh, but, you know, they were some of the, some of our elected officials are quite elderly and not quite as fast as your average 48, 49-year-old, 30-year-old person. Um, and they, they were physically supporting these people and basically half carrying them to a safe location. And I'm like, this was perhaps not planned as well as it should have been, but kudos to them for getting them there. I. I would love for this to be the time that we talk about that officer that you referred to, because it actually has a lot of very important lessons for crowd management and crowd control. Right. So good, good for you, Danielle. Let's take this back to a positive place. So again, who we're talking about here is Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman. And you should, you know, podcast listener, when you hear this name, if you don't immediately know who we're talking about, this is a time for you to stop the broadcast, Google Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman, and look at the images of him standing at the top of a staircase just to one side of the entrance to the Senate chamber. So- Okay, we'll be here when you get back. Yeah, well, right. So tick, 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 tick. Oh, this is when we should do the music. All right, and we're back. And we're back. <laughs> Jacob will doubtless edit that out. <laughs> so Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman is standing at the top of a staircase. And just to set the scene in case you didn't take us up on our offer, he is um, a middle-aged black man um, and he's wearing the full Capitol Police Officer uniform. So he's a uniformed black male. And he's standing at the top of a staircase and the rioters are coming up the staircase towards him. As Eugene Goodman is standing at the top of the staircase, he quickly looks over his left shoulder. When he looks over his left shoulder, he sees that the, the doors to the Senate chamber are completely unguarded. Eugene Goodman realizes at that moment, he is the last line of defense between himself, sorry, between the, the rioters coming up the stairs and senators and Senate staffers who are in the Senate chamber who don't otherwise have a way to get out. At that moment- and he is so outnumbered. Well, he's one guy and there is, you know, a lot of rioters who are 
armed with various objects, all of which can do harm to people and property. At that moment, and, and this is borne out by both video and still photos from that video, Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman does something both brilliant and heroic. After he looks over his left shoulder and sees the unguarded entrance to the Senate chamber, he steps forward to the first step at the top of the staircase and pushes in the chest the first rioter who's coming up the stairs towards him, a guy who's wearing a QAnon shirt. It says, trust the plan, which is QAnon's stupid slogan. And when Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman pushes this QAnon rioter in the chest, at that point, he pisses off the rioter. Brilliant, because at that point, Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman has attracted the attention of this guy as well as everybody behind him. And what we see then is Eugene Goodman steps not to his left towards the Senate chamber where the senators and their staff are waiting at an unguarded door to try to escape. Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman steps to his right and starts moving down the hallway away from the senators and their staffers and what happens? Well, it is reasonably foreseeable and then actually does come to pass that the rioters, because they're pissed off at Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman, a black man in a police uniform, they follow him. They follow him rather than going to their right, which would have taken them right to the unguarded door of the Senate chamber where senators and their staffers were waiting to escape. So Eugene Goodman, through his quick, quick thinking and selfless heroism, drew away a whole bunch of rioters who were armed and threatening, drew them away by his own leadership. And ultimately he was met up by other officers. And so Eugene Goodman was not himself harmed. But this is a truly astonishing bit of quick thinking and really utilizing something that security professionals should be taught all the time. So here's the teachable moment. Um, it, it is a wonderful story and that's why I kept mentioning Eugene Goodman's name. I want you to know who he is. He's an important guy for public safety and he deserves our praise. But he did something which should be part of every security professional's training, which is how do you get people to move in a direction? Well, there are two basic options. One is you can stand where you are and point to where you want other people to go. That, however, is not very effective because people will follow if you lead. And so what security people should be doing, what your, your private security guards and hopefully your, your law enforcement support, what they should be doing is themselves moving in the direction that they want people to go because people will follow if you show your own commitment to moving somewhere. People naturally follow. We are sheep. You know, there's something called the 10-80-10 rule. It's not a rule. It's just basically a bell-shaped curve, but it explains human behavior in the event of evacuations. 10% of people kind of quickly figure out what's going on and take fairly decisive action. That's good. They're the leaders. They are the Eugene Goodman types. 
80% of people, the fat part of the bell-shaped curve, they're followers. They're not part of the problem because at least they'll follow if they're given clear direction, but they're not going to figure it out on their own. Sheep are good animals. They're, they're kind. They're gentle. They just need are shepherds. You? Yeah, exactly. Bah. Um, <laughs> the, the other 10%, the, the far part of the bell-shaped curve, they're the ones you see on TV, you know, running around, hair on fire. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And you basically just leave them alone. And that's how security professionals should be taught. So what Eugene Goodman did, which is what your security staff should be trained to do as well, here's the teachable moment, is if you have to evacuate a crowd, lead, lead them. Yeah. And as you're walking towards an exit, you know, sort of pinwheel your arms like I'm doing right now, you know, come follow me, Fo I'm walking, follow me, I'm taking you to safety. And you know that because I'm going first. I wouldn't go someplace bad because I'd be the first one to get hurt. So follow me to safety. Yeah, and that's it's, a, it's the pull, don't push. It, exactly. It's the pull, don't push. And that is basic security professional training that your staff should be applying. And we saw it beautifully and heroically and courageously demonstrated under really difficult circumstances by one more time, Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman. But it's something that at least fundamentally, all of your staff should know to do anyway. Because this is easily translatable to the fire alarm goes off or there's a spill or any number of uh, any number of events that might happen at your production. Um, I also want to shout out to Officer Goodman's situational awareness because not only did he navigate the stairs backwards and pull, not push, but he was aware enough to realize what was going on at a glance down the left corridor. And that's, I, I'm super impressed. I just cannot imagine having that much presence of mind and kudos to him and and the rest of his team that finally met him on the stairs. That was a pretty amazing story. Yeah, it, it is. So if you're not familiar with that story, despite our fabulous account just now, um, you should look it up because it's the type of thing that in a terrible situation, it's important, I think it's important, to tease out not only the teachable moments like we're doing on this podcast, but also, you know, the things that that reinforce that some people at least are truly good and righteous. And, you know, as a as a society, we will survive this dark time. This is the type of story that gives me heart. Uh, so gives me hope, rather. So anyway, oh, that makes me all like warm and fuzzy inside. All right. Uh, Let's go back, though. I want to go back. So we got the senators, and we've gotten them out, and we have them in a safe, secure location. Can we talk about that? Because Dr. Kevin Claisel and I spent a long time both at our recent summit, and we did a weather podcast where we talked about the need for different types of shelter during emergencies during a pandemic. So, Steve. Yes, so let, let's drop another name. Um, 
So now we're going to talk about Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman from New Jersey, who unfortunately is now recovering from coronavirus. Um, and it seems that where she contracted coronavirus, where she was infected, was in the shelter that she and other representatives from the House chamber were brought in you know, terribly exigent circumstances because the space was small, the representatives and their staffs were all crammed in, and you know that's better than them being exposed to danger, except that the danger was also inside the room because some of her colleagues, we won't go farther than that, some of her colleagues um, refused to wear face coverings. And during a pandemic, that's a bad idea. So circling back to our friend Kev and shelter in place during severe weather, well, God willing, you, podcast listener, you are going to get back to work, to having events, to participating in groups of humans. Um, you're going to get to do that uh, before everyone has been vaccinated. Um, and because of that, you're going to need to think about how much shelter in place do you have? Um, can you disperse people enough so that even if there isn't six feet, that you've taken other measures, such as having somebody in the room enforcing that everyone wears face covering, because they will be in close contact with each other, close contact being defined by CDC as within six feet for 15 minutes or longer within any 24-hour period. Well, that and, describes... And gonna, yeah, that describes that. And, and a face covering isn't a 100% guarantee, but it is a much better mitigator than not having that. And I think there've actually been multiple um, elected officials now that have been diagnosed with COVID since that date. Uh, it's not That's right. the one that you mentioned. Um, so in our episode, we talked about six square feet of space and we talked about chalk, you measure it out. It's, it's a lot more space than, than you think it is. Um, so when you are planning your event and you need to consider shelter, get yourself a couple of pool noodles and make a couple L's on the floor. Figure out how big that really, really is. Steve is demonstrating, but you can't see that because this is an audio only format. But it's a brilliant demonstration know, it though. It really was. Kudos. Kudos to you. Um, and I can totally understand that at some point you have to have a hierarchy of risk. The risk of being actively attacked is a bigger imminent threat than an infection. However, when you're planning things ahead of time, you can incorporate both. If you have to evacuate, you have to have a safe place to have people evacuate too. Right. And notice the sort of seamless web here. Um, you know, we've talked about understanding your demographic in the context of, you know, how much time does it take? But also, you know, one of the reasons why a capital crowd is slow to evacuate is they're old. Well, older people tend to have immunity compromises. And well, that's true in the House of Representatives also. So, 
a lot of these issues wind up repeating themselves. And that underscores the importance of thinking about how much time do you have to evacuate? How much space do you have to evacuate? What resources do you have to move people from a place of relative danger to a place of relatively greater safety? You know, there are no bright lines to this conversation. We are deep in the shades of gray where you have to make judgment calls and, you know, much as Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman had to do, make decisions on the fly based on having a basic clue about your surroundings because you've been thinking about this before. You know, he didn't magically come up with his courageous and intelligent plan, he knew where the Senate chamber was. He knew where he was standing. He came up with a plan based on things that he had already thought about. That's what good planning is for. It's not, you know, kind of like where we started this discussion, history. History is an excellent basis for coming up with a crowd management plan, but it's not handcuffs. You're not a slave to history, just like nobody is a slave to their crowd management plan. Rather, it gives you a firm foundation from which you can deviate as needed in order to effectively deal with circumstances that you actually have in that given situation. You know, plan is not handcuffs. It just gives you a firm foundation from which to make decisions in individual circumstances. I think everybody whose class I've ever taken on doing risk management and doing uh, risk assessments, which is what we're talking about here, risk assessments, is the most important part about doing a risk assessment is actually doing it. It's because you are forced to think through all the what if, what if, what if, and how you would deal with those what ifs. Now, <laughs> life tends to throw us the one we never thought of, but at least you thought of those other ones that may give you the tools to handle that one that you weren't expecting. Yeah. All right. Let's briefly touch on two last things that are mostly visuals, um, but I think that they have teachable moments that we should at least briefly touch on. So there have been pictures um, and also now witness accounts coming out that some number of Capitol Police officers may have been, uh, I'm going to put this carefully here because we really aren't talking about politics on this podcast, um, appear to have been excessively friendly with some of the rioters and that that may have impeded a more comprehensive law enforcement response that would have kept rioters away. It is worth noting that an essential part of working security at an event is having a relationship with people in the crowd. It's actually talking to them. Um, you know, the old days of security guards just being huge guys picked up from the gym and, you know, told to stand, you know, with their arms folded and their muscles bulging. That's not the current model of working security and an event. And frankly, when that is the model, it doesn't go very well. It's better to talk to people in the crowd. It's better to you know, try to convince them that the dumb idea that they have is one they shouldn't act on, where that is possible. So I guess I, I am not being an apologist for people who were supposed to be enforcing the law and then didn't, far from it. Um, 
But I guess I want to draw a distinction between that versus what I do think is good practice, which is for security people to serve an important guest services function. And so for event security, being part of the guest services team, being helpful, giving direction, giving information, yeah, that's part of crowd management. That's part of being a visible presence, wearing security gear that helps keep the crowd orderly and following rules. So, you know, should people charged with public safety be opening gates or, you know, wearing, you know, clothing from rioters? No, no, they should not. We can say that with a high degree of confidence, period. However, in our context as event professionals, security does serve an important guest services function. And so we don't want to say, well, what I saw from the Capitol Police was terrible, so now my security should never talk to our patrons. No, that would be an incorrect conclusion. Security right. should be talking to patrons, should be developing rapport with patrons. That's part, that's really a big part of their job when they're doing their job well. Yeah, I had, I had the same reaction. I was like, when when a lot of that pushback started coming out, I was like, but you know what? I, I, it really helps the, the experience. And frankly, it can sometimes help with the security if the person on that front line is able to have any sort of rapport with the people on the other side of whatever fencing barricade, line in the sand, whatever it is, uh, to have that. Also, they may get information from that person as well that may help them. Now, I'm not talking about the, the events at the Capitol Hall. I'm, I'm talking about our events going forward. I am not smart enough <laughs> to talk about what happened at the Capitol. I don't have enough information, nor is it my place to, to delve into the, whatever went sideways for them there, resulting in loss of life. So this ties in because these people were, were the frontline people. The line they had for most of the capital was a type of barricade that we refer to as bike rack. Uh, there were memes going around on like some of social media, uh, specifically uh, live event people, social media saying they were using bike rack. <laughs> Uh, because we tend to choose very carefully where we use bike rack. Steve, can you talk to us a little bit about different types of barricade and when different types would be most appropriate? Sure. And I mean, th this again is an image that you can see in lots of different places. Capitol Police officers standing in front of bicycle rack style barricade. You know, that's why we call it bike rack because something very similar is actually used to, you know, put your bike in. Um, Capitol Police standing in front of bike rack that is about to be overrun by rioters. Um, and, you know, the conclusion from that in the Capitol Police context is their bike rack was not sufficient for crowd control purposes the rioting crowd easily overran bike rack. So the issue for us as event professionals is 
what does that tell us about the utility of bike racks? Should we get rid of all the bike racks that we have? Should we never use it again? And the answer to those two questions, I believe, is no. No, you shouldn't. Bike rack is perfectly useful. That's why we all have it. Um, bike rack <laughs> has a very useful function. It is an easy way to do line control when you don't have to hold a marauding group of people at bay because bike rack is pretty bad at that. It gets knocked over fairly easily. But as far as establishing a line when the crowd is likely to be either moving across that line or you know, just where the crowd is generally compliant, you know, if people want to drape their arms over the top of bike rack, it's fine. It won't fall over. That's perfectly appropriate. You know, if there's a parade, bike rack is widely used to keep crowds away from moving floats and, you know, right. Same people thing with tossing like batons. And, and, and entrance lines at the amusement park. These are all absolutely acceptable you, you you know you can build um if you have an outdoor classical music concert you can put bike crack around your mix position to you know just remind people that you can't touch your chair right there you know sit somewhere else um one of my biggest concerns with bike rack uh is a it does not withstand pressure and second of all it breaks into pieces and becomes something that is a fairly effective weapon and or ladder uh, depending on, you know, if you have a five foot stage and you have your bike rack come apart, you've just given people a really easy way to climb up onto your deck. Right. So, you know, we don't need to belabor this point. You know, there is a spectrum of crowd management line control devices from, you know, painting stripes on the ground to tensor barriers and other soft, you know, rope-like devices to bike rack to, you know, mojo style blow through barricades with a step so that your security guards can stand over a GA crowd and see into it to Jersey barriers that don't actually do much for crowd control, but do keep vehicles away to just lining up a row of dump trucks or other you know, public safety vehicles, and that keeps away humans and vehicles. Good for, you know, vehicular-borne IED devices, if that's your concern. So there's a whole spectrum. But, you know, consistent with ESA's goal of not demonizing any form of entertainment, which happens from time to time, you know, there's a spate of injuries or deaths in one type of event, and all of a sudden there's a you know, some call to no more of this type of event, you know, no more, whatever. We don't do that. The event doesn't, you know, intrinsically cause health issues or safety issues. Bike rack isn't inherently good, bad, or indifferent. It has to be used in a situation where it's appropriate, which brings me to what I think is a reasonable conclusion to this podcast. You know, it's important to contextualize, and really that's what we've been trying to do with the Capitol riots. And for me, thinking about the Capitol riots just as a disaster doesn't lead me any place that 
that helps me. You know, I'm always looking for a teachable moment. And for me, the teachable moment is every crowd management plan, whether it's a good one or a not so good one, even the most robust crowd management plan can be overrun by a crowd that is aggressive, by a crowd that outnumbers whatever is the security deployment and overwhelms the abilities and resources of whoever is charged with protecting security. No plan is foolproof. There, I just said something that's super obvious. You know, no plan <laughs> is foolproof. Does that mean that the Capitol Police and their plan was sufficient? How the hell do I know? You know, Danielle and I are pretty smart. We're pretty good at this, but we're watching the news just like you all are. And we will continue to do that. that. So for today, you know, Captain Obvious here on your podcast is simply stating something really obvious. No plan, no matter how robust, is foolproof. The key, therefore, as often the case, is to gather enough information by communicating with all of the other relevant people, gathering enough information to minimize the likelihood of bad things happening that were reasonably foreseeable. But more Captain Obvious material now, none of us has a crystal ball. History is a good but imperfect guide. There are certain things for which you can plan, but many that you cannot plan for completely. So we plan in order to frame our response. But then we need people who are quick thinking and courageous to think quickly and exercise their courage too. And sometimes all of those things still aren't enough to avoid safety issues, property damage, even death. And that's what we saw last Wednesday. But for you, gentle podcast listener, I think ultimately the importance is planning for your reasonably foreseeable threats and being in close communication, not only with your local public safety partners and your you know, corporate stakeholders, but also with the people likely to come to your events, being in close communication with them, at least understanding what they're saying, can help you figure out what are the reasonably foreseeable risks for your event and that, in turn, should help inform your risk management plan. All right. So as we come to the end of this, um, if you want to get in touch with us, our email address is podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. We also have an Instagram, Event Safety Podcast. You can find us there. Um, we realize that this is sort of a, a a troubling subject. So we appreciate you guys listening to it. We're really trying to find the lessons to help all of us be safer in the future. And that as soon as we're able to do big events, that we can do them the best way we know how with the information that we have. So I'm going to sign off now. Thank you all, everybody, and stay safe. <laughs>